The talk you're about to listen to is a presentation of Penn State Crew. To find out more about Penn State Crew or to find more talks, music, and videos, check out PennStateCrew.org. Hey, good evening, guys. It's good to be with you again tonight. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to pull them out. We'll go ahead and jump in. And it sounds like we might have a little more time tonight to do more Q&A afterwards. And so I might even try to keep this a bit shorter so we could do even more of that. would love to hear what you're thinking, get to interact with you more. Um, tonight we're going to go in a direction that I think it's fair to say would not usually be talked about, even among Christians when we're talking about mental health. Um, it's in 1 Corinthians 7. It's honestly one of the weirdest passages in the New Testament. It's one that either tends to get ignored or one that, that tends to just make us feel very uncomfortable because we don't know what it's saying. It says very awkward things. Um, very counterintuitive things, and it's also a passage, and, and some of you might be familiar with this, that caused a lot of people, even leaders in the early church, to think that marriage was bad and that singleness was more virtuous and more spiritual. Um, this is the passage, 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says, if you're single, stay there, don't get married, don't seek a wife, and really pretty clearly says it is better to be single than to be married, which is the last message most of you want to hear tonight. And, and I'll, I'll clear that up a bit as a guy who's getting married in six weeks, um, moving from single to married. Um, and that's not even what we're talking about per se, singleness and marriage. But, but what's so significant about this passage is that Paul kind of exposes his reasoning for why he pastors people this way. And, and I think it's really connected to um, a, a significant cause of mental health issues in our culture today. And so let me pray. Um, I'll make a couple introductory remarks as usual. We'll read the passage. We'll get into it. We'll have a chance to do some Q&A interaction. Um, Father, thanks again for the chance to be together tonight, and I pray that as we look at a passage that is probably not nearly as familiar as a lot of other passages in the Bible to us, and even insofar as we maybe have read it before, it's just one that, that tends to land very awkwardly um, tends to feel very counterintuitive, um, very strange, even just very irrelevant often, I think, in our lives. And yet, I pray that your spirit would guide us through this time, that, uh, that you would help us to, to see um, what you inspired Paul to say and, and what it doesn't mean and help us to apply it to our lives. And I pray specifically that you would help us to um, understand what this means for in our culture and, and given one of the scripts that our culture gives us of always wanting more, wanting something different, wanting something above what we've currently attained or experienced um, in Paul's call here to just remain where we are, faithful where we are. Um, I pray that you would help us to wrestle over that, to apply it, and to grow in wisdom and in grace. And so thank you for all these friends. I pray that you would bless them during this time. We invite your presence here, and we just ask that you would speak to us. We're, we're here to listen, um, and so give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So before I read the passage, um, I want to step back both by way of review, but also to clarify something um, that I've been more assuming so far. The first talk, we talked about stress, anxiety, worry, and talked about a practice that I think Scripture gives us for responding to this, as well as kind of ahead of time, shoring up our strength, our resiliency, our, our defenses against it is mindfulness. And, and then this morning we talked about, um, with respect to heartbreak, sadness, 
sorrow, grief, depression, when life is hard, when life is painful, the importance of the practice of lament. And I think if your experience is anything like mine, that, that we're much more likely as Christians to talk about the importance of reading the Bible, the importance of praying, the importance of going to church, and those are all good things. They're all essential, but they really are not designed primarily for dealing with these, and we need more tools in our toolbox, and these are two of the practices. Tonight, I'm going to give you a third practice, and tomorrow morning, we're going to end, and I'm going to give you two more practices. And so we'll kind of have five overall, but I just want to spend a moment thinking about or, or, or kind of trying to break down, maybe in two minutes, what this concept of a practice is. Some Christians would call it a spiritual discipline. Some people would call it practices. Some people would call them rhythms of life or habits. And a practice, the way I'm using it, um, and I think this is actually really crucial because there's two extremes that our culture or your personality make us tend to go, and we need to avoid both of them when we're grappling with hard things in our lives. In a practice, in and, and the basic way I'm going to define it is something that brings together ideas in your head and experience in your heart. It's something that brings together what you believe about God theologically and what you do with your hands and your feet in your body. It's something that brings together passively receiving what God has revealed, but also you participating in it actively. And so let me give you two examples in church and then, or in the Christian faith and then one in our culture. A practice is the Lord's Supper. If you go to church next Sunday and your church is doing communion, the Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, whatever your church calls it, that's a practice because on the one hand, you're doing something and not just analyzing something in your head. You're not just hearing a sermon. You're not just reading the Bible on your own. You're doing something. You're grabbing a, a piece of bread or a wafer and you're eating it. You're grabbing a, a cup of wine or juice and you're drinking it. And if you don't do that, if you don't grab the bread and eat it, if you don't grab the wine and drink it, you're not partaking of the Lord's Supper. But on the other hand, if you don't understand or believe that Jesus had his body broken for you, and that his blood was spilled for you, and it disrepresents it, and instead you're like, oh, I'm kind of hungry and thirsty right now, let me grab that stuff and eat it, you're not actually partaking in the Lord's Supper. Like, it's not just something you do outwardly, it's something that embodies a belief, and both in the sense of reflecting it, but also furthering your experience of it, and it's the same with baptism. Baptism is something where you either get dunked if you're a Baptist, or you get sprinkled if you're a Presbyterian, but, but it's because you believe that you are participating in Jesus' death and resurrection, you're being cleansed from your sin, and if you don't believe that or if you don't know that, you're just getting the bath, you're not getting baptized. And so a practice is not just something you do, it's something that both flows out of, but also itself concretely embodies something you believe as a Christian about who God is and, who he, and how he acts in the world. And so in practices, how you look at them, what your mindset is, is important, but it's also important that you're doing something, that you're not just sitting there passively thinking in your head. And some of you in this room are doers. You, you want to get past the theology, you want to get past the analysis, and you want to say, just tell me five things to do that'll make life better, that will honor God, and I'll go do them. And some of you are like, no, 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 let's, let's get even deeper into this. Let's look at the Bible, let's analyze it, and you live in your head all the time. And practices bring those two dimensions together, and it's important. And for some of you, the practices will be harder because you're used to just being immobile and analyzing and your head all the time. And for some of you, practices will be challenging because, again, in those two illustrations I gave, the Lord's Supper and baptism, a practice can't be accomplished just by doing it. You need to mean something when you're doing it. You need to intend something when you're doing it. If you're just getting water dumped on you, you're just getting a bath, you're not getting baptized. If you're just eating bread and drinking wine, you're not partaking of the Lord's Supper, you're just eating food and drinking a, a drink. Um, and, and a 
cultural practice today would be um, when we sing happy birthday to people in public when it's their birthday. That's something that, they, yes, it's something we do, but we all understand that there's like a thousand beliefs underneath that. Namely, that like it's a good thing that you were born on this day these years ago. We care about you. We want you to feel special in these moments. And if you don't have some semblance of that's what we're doing when we do this, you're actually missing the point of why we sing happy birthday to each other. And in the same way, mindfulness is not something you can just go do. And in lament is not something you can just go do, but it's also not something you can do by just sitting inside your own head and thinking better ideas. James K. Smith talks about how a lot of Christian anthropology and, and spirituality assumes that we're thinking things, or in, in his great image, that we're brains on a stick, and that the key to spiritual growth is to take wrong ideas out of your head and to put the right ideas in, and then we're shocked that that doesn't work. And then we're shocked that we still struggle with sin. And then we're shocked that we still don't feel God's presence and then we still like sin more than holiness. But on the other hand, others of us just want to say theology doesn't matter, seeing the world rightly, seeing God's character doesn't matter, let's just go do stuff. And then you're shocked that at the end of that race, you're just tired and exhausted, but you're not actually changed. And so these practices bring together the story of the gospel and your participation in it. And you need to hold both of those there. And so mindfulness, you actually need to see the world as creation with a creator behind it. Lament, you actually need to see it as addressing God who's made promises, but in a world and in a history where our experience often runs contrary to what we would expect. And so the practice tonight that I'm going to give you in light of 1 Corinthians 7 um, is, in a nutshell, just practicing remaining where you are and being fully present in whatever situation God has placed you in. And I'll flesh out more of what that means, but let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 7. Um, we're not going to read the whole chapter. I am just going to read um, about halfway through. There are three sections in 1 Corinthians 7. Verses 1 through 16 is Paul addressing married Christians and saying, if you're married, here's how the gospel applies to you. The second half of the chapter, verses, or the third part of the chapter, verses 25 to the end, verse 40, is Paul addressing single Christians and saying, if you are single, that is, if you're not married, here's how the gospel applies to how you look at your singleness, how you look at perhaps a desire, uh, uh, an ambition to get married, here's how the gospel applies to it. Most crucially for us tonight, because it's not just connected to marriage and singleness, is in the middle section verses 17 through 24, he lays out his logic and his reasoning for why he gives the advice he gives to married Christians in the first half, to single Christians in the latter half. And as we're going to see, it applies to much more than just singleness and marriage. Um, real quick before I read this, um, I've been teaching through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians for almost two years now in New York City to my grad students. And so I've been living in these texts with students for a long time. And one of the things that's been so helpful is that I think of all the letters that were written to churches in the the New Testament era, Corinth is most like us. Corinth is most like us. They were hedonists, they were greedy, they were status-obsessed, they didn't have a background in Christianity, they tended to be young believers, and more than anything else, Corinth was in so many ways like America. It was a new place, not an old place. And obviously America's been around for a while, but in Corinth there was very little old money, and most people weren't actually from there. They were from somewhere else, and Corinth was settled by former slaves and current slaves, ex-military officers in the Roman Empire, and they all moved there because Corinth was 
was the place where you could make a name for yourself, and it was the place where you could make money and where you could attain glory. And so it was a highly competitive culture. It was a highly, this is mentioned in the East Asia stuff, it was an honor-shame culture where how other people thought about you and your, your, your consciousness of your reputation in other people's eyes was very front and center. And, and, and one thing above all else dominated Corinth, which was it was a culture of upward mobility. It was a culture where, unlike most places in most of history, you actually had the opportunity of ascending the ladder. You could actually become someone that you were not born. You could actually attain to a position, a, a level of wealth, a role in society that you didn't have when you were born. And because of that, Corinth was dominated by people who were trying to get higher up on the ladder than they currently were. And these Christians that Paul's writing to are no different from that. And I will try to flesh this out and defend this claim as I go tonight, but I think one of the three or four things that is at the root of why our culture struggles with mental health more than other cultures is the pursuit of upward mobility. Is this constant obsession with reaching something that you have not yet reached? getting a job that you have not yet gotten hired for, getting a degree that you have not, getting into a school, attaining a relationship, being seen, accomplishing something, getting a level of wealth. And, and, and I talked about this on the first night, that one of the reasons we're always anticipating but never celebrating is we never feel like we've arrived. We always have farther to go. And I think this is under why um, a lot of us struggle with stress, with depression, with a sense of just being restless all the time and not content, that we, like ancient Corinth, are a culture that has been handed a script by our society that says what you have now is not enough. Who you are is somewhere still in the future. What you're destined to do is still out there, and it constantly encourages us to not be here now, focused on the opportunities at hand. And what Paul says to this um, church is very much rooted in this aspect that ancient Corinth had, which ours also does. And so, um, I actually lied to you. I want you to keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 7, but I want you to go back to chapter 1. I actually want to read this first to set it up, because I think Paul is building on this, what he says in chapter 1, and then we'll jump ahead to chapter 7. At the end of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, some of you will remember this or be familiar with it, Paul says in the last paragraph, starting in chapter 1, verse 26, he says, consider your calling brothers and sisters. And the word calling is the central word in 1 Corinthians 7. He's going to appeal to that again. And by calling, he doesn't mean you're calling to a certain job. He means you're calling as Christians. He, he's literally saying, hey guys, step back. Think about how it is that you became Christians. Think about how that story happened in each of your lives. And then he points this out, that have you noticed, and this is absolutely in one sense an insult, but in another sense, absolutely crucial for us to understand. Have you noticed that not many of us were wise according to worldly standards? Not many of us were in powerful positions. Not many of us, before we were Christians, were of noble birth. And yet, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And it's because of him, because of God who has called you, that you are in Christ Jesus. It's not because you're smarter than other people. It's not because you're more powerful than other people. It's not because you're, you're more pleasing to God. It's simply by God's grace that you are in Christ that distinguishes you. 
And in Christ, that's what wisdom really looks like. Having Jesus as your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption, that's true wisdom, that's true glory. So that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul's pointing out something that has been empirically true from the first day of the church until now, 2,000 years ago, which is the more good-looking you are, the more money you have, the more successful you are, the less likely you are to find Jesus interesting. The more broken you are, the more you're oppressed and marginalized. The more the world has broken your heart, the more likely you are to find the church and the gospel attractive. And so over history, Tim Keller often points this out, you can just look at the shift. Unlike most world religions that tend to be focused on one people group or one culture or one geographical area, Christianity has moved its power base like 17 different times throughout history where it really takes off. And if you look at the movement, it's almost always when a culture starts getting secure, when a culture starts getting wealthy, when a culture starts getting powerful, the gospel tends to start diminishing. Where's the gospel taken off today? South America, Russia, China, right? These are the places in, um, among minority communities. Where is the gospel every 10 years diminishing? in really powerful Western cultures, Europe, America, where we really are tempted to think, if I just align my pursuit of the good life well enough, this life might satisfy me. And Paul just points out that, guys, just notice that not none of us, but most of us were not winners in the world's eyes. We were not high on the social ladder. Very rarely do the elites of Manhattan just all of a sudden experience a huge revival. Manhattan's not where revivals happen. Ivy League campuses are not where revivals happen, and that has been true from day one, and Paul says that is intentional on God's part. God does not choose, by and large, the people who are at the top of the ladder. He chooses people who are at the bottom of the ladder. And absolutely, in a sense, that's an insult to us, but it's also true. And it's true of me. It's true of most of you. It's true of most Christians in the world. But it also raises a question, which is, okay, but now we're Christians. What should we do? And, and one of the other things, you can jump ahead to chapter 7, and we'll see how Paul picks up this language and this motif. One of the things that ancient Corinth and, and this church also has in common with us is that there's about 17 problems in, in the Corinthian church that Paul has to deal with in First and Second Corinthians, but they all have one thing in common. They all have in common that the story that's really guiding how these Christians live and look at the world and engage it is not the story of Jesus, but the story that their culture has given them. And they're just dressing up the script that their culture gave them with the story of Jesus. But the real driving force is what they were already trying to do. And so, like us, um, they're basically just trying to do what the culture already encouraged you to do, but just put Jesus at the end of the sentence. They're spiritualizing the scripts their culture gave them. And one of the things they're doing is, yeah, maybe, maybe we're at the bottom of the ladder when God called us into Christ, but doesn't God want us to move up the ladder now? And they're basically taking an instinct that their culture gave them, which is that the meaning of life is to move up the ladder. And they're using Jesus as a means to an end to baptize that script. And Paul is deconstructing it in chapter 7 by saying, no, the purpose of following Jesus is not to move up the ladder. And as we're going to see, moving up the ladder, Paul doesn't say is bad, but he is very clear it is irrelevant. It is meaningless. It has literally nothing to do with what God is doing in the world. It has nothing to do with whether you live your life well, and it has nothing to do with what your priorities should really be. And so you'll hear this is a very counterintuitive passage. And so let's read chapter 7, starting in verse 17. You'll notice that this paragraph, verses 17 through 24, is structured. The first statement, verse 17, the middle statement, verse 20, 
In the final statement, verse 24, he says the same thing. Whatever condition you were in when God called you, that is when you became a Christian, stay there. Remain there. Don't climb the ladder. That's what the paragraph says. There is a lot of you, including honestly me when I was younger, where I think this is one of the greatest challenges to Western Christians. It is so ingrained in us, not only that you should do this, but that God himself sanctions and sponsors this pursuit. And we're going to see a lot of spirituality, a lot of mission, a lot of um, kind of game planning in Western Christianity is you should try to get for the glory of God into the most significant positions politically, economically, socially you can, and then use that for the sake of the gospel and has profoundly mistaken. Not because it's bad to get there, because that's not how God is engaging the world, and it's not how he's changing things. So Paul says, starting in verse 17, only let each of you lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. And we're, and we're going to step back in a minute, and I'll talk about this, but this is, this is the idea of providence, that where you were born, what your gender is, what your Myers-Briggs or Enneagram type is, what, what interests you have and what interests you don't have, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're at Penn State University or whether you're in East Asia, those things were given to you by God, providentially. That doesn't mean that they're all good. It doesn't mean that God affirms the brokenness of the world, but it does mean that we are to receive our lives as a gift from God where we are. And any thought that the main purpose of life is to get somewhere that we're not currently is to misunderstand providence. And so Paul says, God has assigned you a life. He has called you in a certain situation. And the only thing I want you to do is live your life there. And then he says this, and it makes clear, this is not just a response to a particular thing in Corinth. He says, this is my rule in all the churches. This is what I tell Christians everywhere all the time, that wherever God called you, stay there and lead your life. Was anyone... At the time of his call, that is when you became a Christian, already circumcised. That is, were you an ethnic Jew keeping Torah and kosher? Don't seek to remove the marks of your circumcision as if being Jewish is a problem and as if becoming a Gentile is what you need to do. On the other hand, were any of you, when you became a Christian, uncircumcised, that is a Gentile? Don't think that what you need is to move up the ladder to Judaism because it is irrelevant whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. You can say that about being a man or a woman. Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. The only thing that matters is keeping the commandments of God. And so for a second time, each one of us should remain in the condition in which he was called, even if you're at the bottom of the ladder. And then he gives an example that has bothered Western Christianity in many ways, rightly so, for a long time. Were you, this is a cop-out of a translation in the ESV, were you a bondservant? It's not what it says. Were you a slave? This is slavery language. Were you a slave when you became a Christian? Do not be concerned about it is also probably not a good translation. Probably a better translation is do not despair about it. Don't think that your life is pointless. Don't think that God can't use you. Don't think that you are less useful than someone who is a master or someone who owns a lot of money that is, has nothing to do with how, what God is doing in the world. Do not despair about it. But, and we're going to say this is significant, he gives an exception here on slavery. But if you can gain your freedom, do it. And so this is, there's a sense in which Paul describes this as a rule, but it's not actually a rule because there are exceptions. You are allowed to move up the ladder. What you're not allowed to do is treat that as spiritually significant. 
What you're not allowed to do is make that your priority in life. What you're not allowed to do is make that your posture, where every day you're just looking for new opportunities for you to move up. That, as a rule, should be our position, which is all things being equal. Stay where you are and be focused on that. There are situations, like being a slave, if you can gain your freedom, if you're single and you burn with passion, whatever the heck that means, then go get married. But if your biggest goal in life is to get married, and if the biggest threat to your happiness is that you're single forever, you don't understand the gospel, and you don't understand what God is doing in the world. And so that cannot be the chief ambition that drives our lives. And so he goes on, and he says, for verse 22, the one who is called in the Lord as a slave is actually free in Jesus. Likewise, he who is free in society when called as a Christian has now become a slave of Christ. So notice it depends on how you look at it. The culture has a script, the gospel has a script, and you need to know the difference between those two scripts. You were bought with a price, referring to Jesus' death on the cross. Do not become slaves of people, which seems to refer to don't let the culture script become the most important thing in your life. Because nobody sells themselves into slavery. That can't be a literal statement. What it means is don't think that when your culture encourages you that you only have the good life if you're moving up the ladder, don't become slaves to that. You were bought with a price, and that is not your story anymore. Don't allow that to enslave you. So, conclusion, brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each of you was called, again, became a Christian, there let him remain with God. Paul says it three times. Let me read the next paragraph or two as he begins to apply it to single Christians so that we can see how he fleshes it out, and then I'm going to make three points. Now concerning the betrothed, and, uh, and literally it's virgins, um, there's always a debate in church history on who these people actually are, but almost certainly they're single Christians who are not yet married, whether they're engaged and betrothed or whether they're just single and, and all over the map in terms of what they're thinking, they're single, they're not married. And he says this, I have no command from the Lord. It's not, Jesus doesn't say that you have to get married or that you have to get single or that you have to be single, but I do give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And if you're single and you are dominated every day by, I can't wait until I get married, I can't wait until I get married, and all the pieces of your life are shuffled around that, and all your energy and all your focus is on that, here's what I want you to understand. I think that in view of the present distress, I think a better translation of that is the present current necessity. It's a phrase he uses a little later in 1 Corinthians with respect to mission that something is going on in this world right now which takes priority over whether you're married or single. And, and I often say this to students, this isn't the point tonight, but just so it's helpful to you, if the world had never fallen into sin, we would all be married. It is not good for human beings to be alone, is a universal creational ideal for God. Being single is something that only exists because we fall into sin. And for Christians, because God has launched a rescue mission in the gospel and through the church, and the mission of the gospel takes priority over marriage and singleness. If getting married or staying single fits that higher mission, that ladder, feel free to do it, but if this takes the place of the present necessity, this, this mission that, that God has given the body of Christ, then you're not understanding the script that the story of Jesus has given us. And so he says, in view of the present necessity, I actually think it's good for a person, and here he says it again for the fourth time, to remain as he is. So if you're single, Paul says, I actually encourage you, consider staying where you are. 
and not putting a ton of resources and time into getting married. And, and I'll break down what that means practically in a second. And so he says, are you already bound to a wife? That is, are you already married? Don't seek to be free. Don't be like, man, I, I, just, I would love to ditch this person, get divorced, and not be you know, connected to them and limited by them anymore. Which, by the way, whenever you're single and, and you're like, man, I can't wait to be married, a lot of the married people are, oh, I wish I would have used my singleness so much differently than I did. Because you have so, like, like, everybody always looks like the grass is greener on the other side. And Paul's saying this to both the married and the singles wherever you are, remain there, be faithful there. But then he goes on and he says this do not, are you free from a wife? That is, are you single? Do not seek a wife. Do not seek a spouse. That does not exert a whole lot of influence in, in our discipleship today. And in some ways, rightly so, because it tends to be misunderstood. Notice the next um, thing he says. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Now, there is a cynical reading of that, which you could hear Paul is damning marriage with faint praise. If you're such a spiritual wussy that you got to get married, fine, you haven't sinned. I, I, I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think that's what he's saying. What he's saying is it should, not, not on a desire level, because we are, we're wired to be connected to one another in a sexual covenantal relationship. And if you're single long-term, you're in, in a very real way being called to go against the grain of how you've been created. And it's hard to be single. It really is. But nonetheless, there's something even more important in the universe than you finding a spouse and so if you choose to get married, you haven't sinned, but nonetheless, I, I pray that that's not your main priority. And again, you can apply this to jobs, you can apply this to where you live, you can apply it to all the things that we think might be at the top of the ladder and that we build our lives pursuing. And he goes on, um, if you do marry, you have not sinned, verse 28, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned either, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you from that. And that raises a lot of questions what he means there. I don't think what he means is that being married is harder than being single. I think one that's not true, two that goes against everything Scripture says. What I think he means is given what actually matters in life, being single is an advantage and being married is a disadvantage. Being married gives you another priority that you need to be focused on. And if you are single and you're able to flourish in that, you are more free to be devoted to what is actually going on in the world. You are more free with your time, your energy, and your availability to what actually is going on at the heart of the universe right now. And if you're married, you haven't sinned, but you got a second set of obligations that truly limits your availability to God's mission. That is really, really countercultural. And I say that as a guy who's going to get married in six weeks. And yet Paul says, this is the script of the gospel. And so this is what I mean, brothers and sisters, verse 29, the appointed time has grown very short. I'll come back to this in a minute, but I don't think Paul means in this passage, although a lot of Christians throughout history have taken him this way, which is Jesus is coming back in like 10 years. Why even bother getting married? One, because that's not true. And if that's the basis on which Paul is advising these Corinthians to not get married, he was blatantly wrong. And two, because I think that's not what he means. He means something else, which is the old, and, and I'll flesh out in a minute what I mean by this, the old is already on the way out, and the new is already on the way in. They're both in transit. The old's not completely out, but the appointed time has grown short. And the new's not completely in, but it's already been launched. And, and let me give you a, an illustration that I find really funny, but also I think meaningful here. Um, and I'll apply this in a second to what this means practically. Um, anybody like the, the sitcom Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Yes. 
Um, love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. They always have these great cold openings. They always have these great cold openings in the first scene of the show. And one of the funniest ones is Jake Peralta comes in one day and he's super excited because some rich, absurdly rich uncle that he's never met has died and he's heard that the uncle has left him an inheritance. And he's super excited, he's like, gonna see you losers later, I'm gonna be a billionaire after this. And he opens up the will that his uncle has left to him and it's a million shares of Blockbuster Video. <laughs> Worth exactly nothing. Worth exactly nothing. And what Paul is saying here is do not build your life investing in blockbuster video. It is already on the way out. Netflix is coming. And a lot of us, our culture, if Paul is right, our culture encourages us to invest in blockbuster video and thinks that this is going to last forever, but it's already on the way out. It's not completely on the way out, but it's already on the way out, and something new is on the way in that will last forever, and Paul says, make investments in that direction. Climb the ladder in that direction, and climbing the ladder here will actually look like staying where you are in the world script, because what God is doing in the new doesn't work the same way in the old. And so much Christian discipleship, in my impression, in my conviction, so much strategizing and mission is actually just trying to change the old rather than to adopt the new and to live within it. I'll try to make that less abstract in a minute, but I think that's what he means. He doesn't mean Jesus is coming back in 10 years, so why bother? What he means is the decisive blow against this present evil age has already been won on the cross. Blockbuster video is going out of business soon. Why are you trying to rearrange the chairs there, and the new has already arrived and is being built, invest there. Which raises the question, what is the old, what is the new? Talk about that in a minute, but I think that's what Paul means. And then he goes on, and this might be the strangest part of the whole passage, but I think also incredibly relevant. And so therefore, middle of verse 29, therefore from now on, now that you are a Christian, now that you've been called, whether slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile, broken, poor, uneducated, or Ivy League education, and you're at the top of a CEO business, wherever you are, from now on, moving forward, here's the script. Let those who have wives live as if they did not. And let those who mourn, mourn as if they were not mourning. And let those who rejoice, rejoice as if they weren't actually rejoicing. And let those who buy, purchase, engage in the goods of the world, do that as if they had no goods. And this last one is clearly the summary that sums them all up. And let those who deal with the world, this present evil age that is already in the midst of passing away, deal with it as though they actually had no dealings with it. Because the present form of this world is already passing away. Paul basically says that you should do whatever you're doing as if you weren't doing it, which is obviously a paradox, raises a lot of questions. What does that mean? So let me flesh out three things and hopefully make this tangible for us what Paul is saying. And just going to, my three points, they're already there in the text, but I just want to flesh out what I think they mean. The first thing Paul says is this, wherever you are right now, wherever God has called you, stay there, remain there. That's the first thing Paul says. Are you currently living in central Pennsylvania? Yes, 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 stay there. Are you currently single? Are you currently majoring in this major? Are you currently on this direction? Stay there. Not, again, we already saw this, not that there's no exception to that. In part, being a college student means you can't stay there forever because the meaning of being a college student is going somewhere else. But for instance, let me, let me flesh this out um, this way. Imagine, and this is something that we should do, both with the gospel 
as well as the scripts our culture gives us, imagine if, if the thing that dominates your life, it could be relationships romantically, it could be jobs, it could be education, it could be wealth, it could be your reputation in the eyes of society. Imagine that every day you're waking up and you're just saying about, oh, if I could only get that. Oh, if I could only get there. Oh, if I can only do A, B, and C so that D, E, and F happen, and that's the way you live your life. Follow that a little farther down the road and even give yourself, for the sake of the argument, the, the benefit out and say, say you actually get that. Say all that actually happens. What's actually happened 40 years from now? And here's what's happened. One, none of it actually satisfied you. You're still as restless. You're still as unhappy. You're still as much living in a fallen world as you are now. Nobody is happier at the end of that road than they were before it. We know that empirically. We just ignore it. That is not the secret to what distinguishes happy people from unhappy people, that you got higher up the ladder. Two, Almost certainly, you wasted a lot of time throughout all these years that you could have spent otherwise. When everybody else was over here, or, or when needs were here, you were pursuing this and justifying it, and so constantly putting all of the brief time God has given you, the limited resources he's given you, all of your energy, all of your gifts, were being devoted to that, and you'll look back and you'll see that you weren't present most of the time along the way, that you were not available to what God was doing in the various situations you were in. You didn't really know your neighbors and what they needed. You didn't love them very well. You were just absentee the whole way through. And in fact, arguably, I would say, probably more stressed out, a little less unhappy, less happy than other people. But all along the way, as you don't remain where you are, you're actually not engaging in what God is actually doing in the world. And you're actually making investments in blockbuster video and shocked that there's no returns on it. That's what Paul is saying. If we hear what Paul is saying here as, oh, here's a bunch of limits, you're not allowed to do all these things if you're a Christian, we would be mishearing him. Richard Hayes, in his great commentary on 1 Corinthians, he rephrases the command that dominates this chapter, wherever you are, remain there. He rephrases that as bloom where you are planted. Flourish wherever you are. Be fully here right now. Be aware of what God is doing in this moment. Be aware of what God is doing in this scene when you're a junior in college or when you're a grad student or when you're two years into your job in this city. Be really aware of what God is doing right there, right then. Know what your neighbors need. Know who they are, whether they're Christians or not, and be available to what the new that's rising up in that situation actually is and minimally make investments in the old because you got to show up at work. You got to do this, you got to do that. Paul's not saying that, but he's just saying that's not where God is really acting. And so wherever you are, bloom where you are planted. This is a missional category. It's an understanding of where God is working and where he's not working. And again, there are exceptions. If along the way you want to get married, Paul says, don't feel guilty, get married. If you want to leave central Pennsylvania and you want to go to one of the coasts or you want to go to another country, that's fine. But, but as, again, not, not a rule in the sense of a legalistic thing you can never avoid, but, but just as a posture, let me give you something tangible to think about. I think for almost all of us, it's a fruit of a lack of wisdom if the next 30 years of your life include 15 moves. If the next 30 years of your life include you moving 15 times. Why, why are you moving? Why are you constantly going on? You, you're not going to get to know people in your church. 
You're not going to get the new numbers. You are going to waste. And I remember this. I'll, I'll give you an illustration. For various reasons that, that are multifaceted, which I won't bore you with, the, the 10 years that I lived in Boston doing campus ministry there, I think I moved eight times from one apartment to another, one neighborhood to another. And as I look back, I just see, not in an epic way, because it's not one of the 10 most important things in my life, but in a true way, that man, like when you're in campus ministry, all your staff here could tell you, like summers are really important to be able to recharge. There are times when you can rest. There are times when you can pursue. And I spent eight out of my 10 summers in Boston dominated by looking for a new apartment packing up all my stuff, moving into place, figuring out where new grocery stores were, figuring out where a new church wasn't doing this. And it was all an incredible exertion of energy that didn't actually make me any more available to what God was doing in that scene over those years. Does that mean that you can't ever move? No, it doesn't mean that. Does it mean you can't get married? No. But in general, your, your priority, your posture, your inclination should be, all things being equal, let's just stay where we are. Let's just be fully present here because you've already made investments. You can already leverage things in your relationships and in what you know about this area. And it takes an enormous amount of energy to be constantly uprooting yourself. And our culture is not only dominated by upward mobility, but by transients. People in our culture don't know each other. They don't stick around very long. And we don't stay in many places very often. And so Paul, again, not as a rule in the way that we would hear it, but as a principle says, wherever you are, bloom there. Wherever God has planted you, flourish there. Be available to God's purposes, be available to your neighbor, and just make that kind of the script that you live out of. Make that a real core conviction. Practical way to say it, would anybody be able to look back on your life 40 years from now and look at the way you lived your life and say, yeah, this was a core value for me? This was a core value for me, for me to bloom wherever I was planted. Or was I an empty desk in an empty, you know, suit and, and, and just a ghost, just half there, but half gone wherever I was? And that could be with your kids. That could be in your church. That could be um, in the area you know, not getting to know your neighbors. But the way God changes the world has literally nothing to do whether you have an important job or a less important job. Literally nothing. It has literally nothing to do with whether you live in New York City or in the suburbs of Iowa. It has literally nothing to do with that. It has literally nothing to do with whether you are married or whether you are single. It has literally nothing to do with that. Many of these things are good. I love living in New York City. I'm a city kid. I rejoice in it every single day. And, and I'm sure that everybody in this room who's married in many ways just loves being married. It's hard too, but is really grateful for it but it literally doesn't move the ball forward in what God is doing in the world at all in and of itself. In that situation, you could be a good spouse or a bad spouse, and that matters, but whether you're a spouse or not does not matter. Whether you live in the city or the suburbs does not matter. How much money you make does not matter. That's blockbuster video stuff, and it's going out. And think about this. You are not going to be married in the world to come. I would guess that you guys know that, in the resurrection, there is no marrying or giving in marriage. In the world to come, there will be no distinction between the powerful and the downtrodden because all things will be just. Rearranging these chairs is trafficking in an area that is on the way out and that will not be taken into the world to come. But there is stuff that will be taken into the world to come, and you can invest in that now. And so, second thing is this. Whatever your present situation is, make this your primary deepest priority, keep the commandments of God in whatever situation you are in. 
here's a great ambition for your life. We write out mission statements for jobs and companies, for even individual lives, for organizations. Here's a mission statement every Christian should adopt and think about every day. You could say it in a hundred different ways, but wherever I am and whatever I'm doing, I want to love God with all my heart and soul and strength and mind, and I want to love my neighbor as myself. I want to be really, really freaking good at that by God's grace and for his glory. You putting much effort into that in your life? Studying how to get better at that? Growing in that skill? And let's be honest, our culture doesn't encourage us at all to get better at those things. And so, and this is probably the part of this message that, that is the hardest for us to hear as Western Christians, but I want to absolutely just go this direction so that some, maybe some diagnostic work can, can be done in each of our lives, including me. If you are living primarily by the script of upward mobility and getting married or, or you know, just dating a lot of people or moving into a city or getting this job or this education is driving you, here is something that's probably happening in your life. Obedience keeping the commandments of God, one of three things is happening. You're postponing it, you're marginalizing it, or you're actually sacrificing it. Yeah, I'll give more money when. I'll go to church every Sunday when I get here. I'll actually care about missions. I'll actually have a regular prayer life. I'll actually get to know the Bible well. I'll actually care about the poor when. How often is that our thought as Christians? When I get here, then I'll take obedience seriously that gets the story backwards. And, and let me flesh it out this way, and I'll share an illustration on this in a minute, but you all know this deep down, being at Penn State in this wonderful community, churches you grew up in, churches you see now, nothing sets back the mission of God in the world when there is a community of just really self-centered, superficial Christians. Nothing makes the gospel less believable to the world. Nothing makes it less compelling. You know what the world doesn't care about at all? How much money you make as a Christian, whether you're in a high position in your company. It's like, oh, well, you're in that position in the Fortune 500 company? Well, maybe I will listen to what you say. That doesn't matter at all. But whether you're Christ-like, whether you bear the image of God well, whether you love your neighbor above and beyond your own pursuit of your own desires, that makes the gospel attractive to people. That makes the kingdom of God real in a way. And so I would guess that for many of you, the times when the gospel has seemed most beautiful, most compelling, is when you've been around other Christians who are actually taking Jesus seriously, who are actually putting his priorities above their own fleshly, selfish desires. And at the times when you've been most frustrated, or let's put it this way, when your non-Christian friends are just like, what are you doing wasting your time with this religion stuff, is when they meet Christians who just live exactly the same way everybody else does. Greedy, self centered, worldly, me, mine, my desires, and that's the center of the universe. Nothing frustrates the mission of God in the world more than that, and nothing makes the mission of God more powerful than when there is a community of Christians, whether they're broke or rich, whether they're educated or not educated, whether they're heartbroken or whether good stuff's happening in their life in a worldly way, but they're following Jesus together in a little outpost of the kingdom of God in the midst of this present evil age. And so, here's another way I would put it. One of the reasons you shouldn't primarily be focused on, can I get there, can I get this, can I accomplish this, is because there's something else you should be focused on more, which is wherever you are, not just in your own life, although certainly that, um, but, but I often say this to, to Christians and to students over the years, and, and, and I just become more convinced of this more and more as I get older. Here is a great outline 
of, of a life plan for each one of us. And it's not one that our culture endorses. It's not one that our culture encourages, which is imagine that, and, and it's not that you have to do it like this way, but let's just imagine, look down the, the road a bit and, and hypothesize. Imagine that you only live in one or two places the rest of your life after you leave Penn State. Imagine that you stay in your job, even though it's not like, you know, your dream job necessarily, and you know that maybe I could make some more, more money if I left my church and where I'm at going over there. And, and imagine if, even though marriage is hard, I, I stay rooted and I don't even think about divorce and I just stay faithful there. Or whether you're single, you don't just let, you know, the dream of getting married become the front and center thing. All of this stuff, and you just live in one place, and you devote a really significant amount of your time and your energy and your gifts and your strategizing, and your prayer, and your resources, to helping the local church that you are a part of look more like Jesus than it did before you got there. On the day you have died, you have lived your life well, if the Christian community you're a part of looks more like the kingdom of God than it did before you got there. And it actually takes forward what God is doing in the world. And there are Christian communities everywhere. There are churches in every place, in every situation. What matters is not where you are or what you're doing. It, what matters is what you're doing wherever you are. And Paul says, keep the commandments of God. Help the church bear faithful witness to the world. Let me give this, uh, this illustration, and then I'll move on to my final point. Um, it might seem goofy. I actually think, take this one and think about it more after I say it. I think this one is really helpful. Imagine that the world, this present evil age in, in Paul's language here, is IBM. And imagine that the church is Apple. Um, and and if, you, if you're a computer person, you probably know that like IBM's PCs, like they just, they break down a lot. They just, they're not super efficient. They're just, they're kind of crappy at times. And the reason so many people love Apple is because they make better computers. Here's what a lot of Christians do once they start noticing that PCs are not the best computers ever made. Is they start thinking, and again, this is an analogy, they start thinking, oh, well, if only we could get the really important positions in IBM, we could take IBM over, we could ascend up the ladder of IBM, and then we could just help them make slightly better PCs. And that is not how God is engaging the world. He's not saying, yeah, we just need people in, in better positions so that we can do more. What he's doing is he's creating an alternative company in an alternative community and the million-dollar question is, do we produce better computers than IBM does? Do we produce better human beings who bear the image of God more than the world does? And the goal is not climb the ladder of IBM. The goal is help Apple produce better computers. And Apple is the church there. It's the body of Christ. It literally doesn't matter. We all need jobs in IBM until this present evil age passes away. But where your job is in the company literally doesn't matter because IBM has nothing to do with what's coming in the future. But the church does. Let me use one more example, and then I'll, I'll move on to my last point. Imagine, and, and this is literally what kingdom of God imagery is about in the New Testament. In the Bible, it's, it's political imagery. Imagine that you live in a country, in a culture, that's very oppressive, very dark, a, a place that, that, that people aren't flourishing. It, it's, there's a, a profound divide between the rich and the poor. Resources are not equally distributed. Um, people aren't allowed to say what they think. They're not allowed to be who they are. And everybody wants regime change. And you're in this nation. You're in this government. You're in this place. And one day, somebody shows up in your town and in your nation with news. A revolution has happened. This present regime has already been overthrown, and a new king has ascended to the throne. And he's coming. He's coming. He hasn't come yet, 
but he's coming in the future. But even now, messengers are going everywhere. And within the midst of these regimes that have already received their death blow and that are already in the process of coming down, little communities are being formed in those places, and they will be the basis of the new regime to come when the king arrives. What do you do with your time? You don't primarily try to get into positions of power in the old regime and just rearrange the chairs a bit. You invest in the new regime because that's the future. And in the world to come, one of the ways is said is that we will reign with Christ. God will um, engage the world through those who follow Jesus, and this is at the heart of what the future holds. And whether you are an American or whether you were Chinese, whether you were broke or whether you were rich, literally doesn't matter. And so Paul says the only thing that matters is wherever you are, obeying God, keeping his commands, living out the call to Christ-likeness. Okay, final thing, number three, and whatever you do that's the same as what you were doing before, and you're going to be doing a lot of the same things. You're going to go to class on Monday. You're going to get a job. Most of you will get married, absolutely. Paul knows that. But now, do those things that you were either already doing or that you were going to do anyway, but now do them as if you weren't doing them. What does that mean? And it should be, I think, pretty obvious at this point. It means um, disinvestment on the one hand and reinvestment on the other. It means that you don't put most of your eggs in the basket of whether you get married or not. It means that you don't put most of your eggs in most of your, even just ask yourself really practical things, where do my daydreams go every day? Where do I spend my time and my energy thinking about, plotting about, trying to get? And it shouldn't be primarily these things that Paul calls the things of the world. They're not bad, but they are passing away, and they literally make no difference to what God is doing in the world. And so when you're there, have a level of disinvestment. Have a level of detachment from it. Um, for some of you, um, especially maybe stereotypically, let me say guys right now. If you're a single guy, there are probably some things in your life that feel really important to you right now, like whether Penn State beats Minnesota in a couple of weeks. And one day, you might, you know, meet a girl you fall crazy in love with, and she's now kind of, in a worldly sense, you know, the center of your life, and it's really joyful. And you'll look back on the 19-year-old version of you where your, your mood changes, went up and down every day about whether Penn State won or not. You're like, what the heck was I doing? And it's not that you won't care about Penn State football anymore, but you'll have an as-if-not connected to it now. And if they lose, you'll be like, ah, but I'm married to an amazing woman, so who the heck cares? And Christians should be like that towards everything in this world. They shouldn't have an as if not. Yes, we mourn and yes, we rejoice, but not as those who are fully invested in what happens here. Now, instead, we reinvest in the coming of the kingdom and what God is doing on mission in the world. Go to East Asia this summer. Um, But it doesn't mean that you need to go into ministry. That's not the point here. It means that wherever you are, be focused primarily on what God is doing and how he is doing it. And he's doing it through the church, and he's doing it through Christians, not just saying true things, but actually embodying the story of Jesus in their community. And so, a couple of final so what implications. The first is this, and and whenever I say this, um, there's always a sense of, ugh, but I think it's true. And I also think that if you hear this, and you understand this, and you accept it, it is liberating, and it is freeing. So the first thing is this, don't over-spiritualize your jobs. Don't over-spiritualize your marriages. Don't over-spiritualize where you live. You can rejoice in those things. You can be grateful for them, but they literally have nothing to do with what God is doing in the world. Do not over-spiritualize. Let me give you an example. 
yeah, I, I'm working 70 hours a week, and I got to skip church like three times a month, and, and I'm not even connected to my kids, and I'm not even loving my wife or well, but what Jesus really needs is for me to get there in my job. Don't do that. Don't use Jesus as a means to an end of chasing the ladder that the culture gave you that script for. If you do that, do that, but be honest about why you're doing it, and it's not because you're kingdom-minded. It's not because you love Jesus so much and you want to make an impact for him, or it's because you wrongly understand how Jesus is working in the world. Pursue a job you like and enjoy it, absolutely, but don't over-spiritualize it. Do it as if not. Have a level of detachment from it. And most importantly, and this is what all of that is for, is wherever you are and whatever you're doing, be here right now, fully present. Be available to what the people around you need. Be understanding of what God is doing in a situation in a moment. Have eyes for that, discern that, and be fully available for that and be willing to sacrifice the things that you're doing as if not. And for a few of you, that might even mean marriage. Some of you in this room might be called to singleness long-term, not because it's better than marriage, but because it will help you engage even more in things that matter long-term. And the reality is that the two most significant figures in the rise of the church were Jesus and the Apostle Paul, and they were both single. And the reason they were able, among other things, to accomplish so much is because they didn't have to go home to a spouse every night and to kids, which is a good thing, and care about them. Paul knows that because of the wiring of creation, most of us would actually um, sabotage our availability to God if we stayed single long-term because it would be such a distraction and it would be such a temptation. And so he knows most of you won't, but some of you might be able to do that. And what's the criteria you're using? And it should be the mission of God in the world. And ultimately what matters is being free for what God is doing, being available to what other people need and the reality is that in Western culture, many of us are just not very available to what God is doing. Many of us are not very available to our neighbors, and that should be our priority. We have two jobs. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Wherever you are for the rest of your life, make it your life's ambition to be really good at that. If you're really good at that, you will have lived your life well. If you are not good at that, it does not matter whether you got married or not or had a good marriage. It does not matter what job. You will have gained the whole world but lost your soul. And so wherever you are, remain where you are. And, and as I end and I pray, here's the thing. You'll love God and you'll further his purposes in the world. You'll actually contribute to your neighbor's flourishing, but you will also flourish yourself in mental health ways, in ways that you cannot even imagine until you take this leap into it. So wherever you are, bloom where you are planted. And I think that's really connected to a community that flourishes. So let me pray. Father, thank you for um, this passage. It is a hard one. It is a, a strange one. Um, but I pray that you would help us to wrestle with how radically different the script of the gospel is than the script that our culture gives us that you would help us to really take seriously that is not through the powerful, the wise, the rich, those who are and who have positions of influence in our culture. It's not through the United States of America or the American government. It's not through Ivy League universities or Penn State football or um, anything like that that the world is going to be redeemed. It is through those who follow Jesus taking the gospel to the nations and living out the gospel and embodying it in their own communities that that is the secret to what you are doing in the world. And as the old is already in the midst of passing away, 
And as the new has already been born and is already growing around the world, communities are springing up with the gospel. I pray that you would help us to disinvest, not from what's bad, but from what is ultimately irrelevant and temporary, and to reinvest in what matters. Loving you, loving others, following Jesus together, and by your grace, excelling in that. By your grace, not being hypocrites. By your grace, sacrificing secondary goods for the sake of primary um, prerogatives and, and ambitions in the kingdom of God. Help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And I pray that among many other things, that one of the things that would be experienced even very early on as we begin to take steps in that direction is that we would see that this is actually freedom and not slavery this is actually the way to flourishing and not a life of tragedy of giving up our dreams. That this is actually freedom from the illusions and the idolatry of our culture, which regularly invest in the wrong directions, and actually a call to joy, to adventure, um, and to just flourishing as human beings who are made in your image. Help us to have that level of faith. Help us to have that wisdom. And again, I pray that you would give wisdom at each step of the way. Some people will be graduating in a few months here. Others are wondering, do I get married in the near future? Do I move to this city? Do I stay in this career? Do I go somewhere else? And in the midst of all those complicated questions where there's never a, a straightforward, easy answer, there's not a, a right and a wrong answer um, to those questions, I pray that the criteria that we use would be the criteria of the gospel, would be the criteria of what really matters, and then we would choose to love God and to love our neighbors above loving ourselves. And that that above all else would be what sets us apart from other people, that people would find that compelling, that they would see the beauty, the generosity, the kindness, the love of God for a fallen world as we manifest that by your grace um, and through your spirit. And so I just pray for each person here for wisdom, but also for grace to remain where we are and to keep your commandments wherever we are and to do all the things that are connected to the old that's passing away as if we weren't doing them. Help us to do that well by your grace. And I pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Come on up. Come down there. Thanks so much. Um, <clears throat> I really appreciate your willingness to not just learn yourself um, a difficult passage of scripture, um, but also to teach it as well. So th thanks for guiding us through that. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so the first question is, is personal to you. So yeah. when you think about your own life, um, how did you decide whether it'd be better to remain single That's or to be married? That's a great question. Yeah, you should totally ask me that question. Yeah. Um, a couple of things. One is that I'm 40 years old, that I have been single for a decent amount of my life. Um, a second thing is that I really do think, and, and, and this is where I do think that 1 Corinthians 7 actually is a bit misleading on the surface. I think that if you dig deep enough, Paul does know that most of us not only are going to get married, but we should get married. Because the reality is, let me just put it bluntly, most of you, if you tried, under the auspices of being available to God's purposes, chose to try to be single for the rest of your life, you would be less productive for God. You would be less available to your neighbor because you're not given the gift. Paul literally says earlier in the chapter that some have the gift of singleness, and he says, I wish all of you had that gift, 
but we don't. And so for most of us, it would actually be so going against the grain of, of how God has created us, as well as trying to walk into situations that we've not been given a grace for, that we would just spend a lot of time feeling sorry for ourselves, being lonely, dealing with sexual temptation, um, dealing with probably some depression and sadness and loneliness. And marriage really is a grace that is meant for most people but nonetheless is passing away. And nonetheless, it has nothing to do with whether your life is connected to what God is doing or not. There are people who are married who are going against the grain of the universe, and there are people who are married who are furthering the kingdom. There are people who are single who are absolutely going to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. And there are people who are going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Whether you're single or married does not matter. What matters is whether you're following Jesus, but contextually being single raises the possibility of more energy, more time, more opportunities that direction, but with this provides one. I think when Paul says, if you burn with passion, he absolutely does mean that that's the criteria, unless you burn passion, in which case get married. He does mean that sexual desires are a real central reality for human beings, and they are not to be toyed with lightly. They are not to be toyed with lightly. And a lot of you have already, and a lot of you will, and you know this around our culture, that we make shipwreck of our lives because of what we do with this powerful force in our lives. We make really bad decisions. We make really selfish decisions. And Paul knows if we're not given the grace for this, then against our good intentions, we'll actually be counterproductive for what God is doing. But I also think that burning with passion, it doesn't just mean sex. It just means the, the, the overall instinct we have to move towards another person of the other gender and to be united to them. And that's, that's vocational, that's relational, that's, that's psychological. And in all those ways, Paul says, here's the criteria, can you follow Jesus in such a way single that you can actually redirect all that energy towards loving God and loving other people and participating in his mission. And, and again, I hope that this is a bit of a relief for many of you because I think it's true. Most of you, the obvious answer to that is no. No, you cannot. You will actually be so hindered by your singleness and where your thoughts go and your loneliness and your emotions and your sexual desires that it would just be better to get married. And yes, that brings new obligations that you need to honor. And, and Paul even says the reason Paul was able to go to all these cities and Peter and James and John, they just say in Jerusalem, was Peter, James, and John had wives and kids. They had to say, once you're married, you are not allowed to engage in the mission of God in a way where you throw your spouse and your kids under the bus. Christians do that all the time. You're not allowed to do that. Once you are married, you are called to 100% faithfulness to them. And if it means not going to East Asia for a summer, then it means not going to East Asia. If it means not living here, then it means not, if it means not being out three nights a week to lead small group Bible studies, then don't do that. If you're married and you have kids that need you, but the reality is that most of us aren't given that gift. And so the simple answer is, is I don't think I'm given that gift. Um, and I'm marrying someone who is a, a, a devout, you know, faithful Christian believer. She's in ministry as well, and we want to do ministry. But nonetheless, there are going to be a lot of opportunities like this that I will have to say no to in the years to come that I've been saying yes to for a while. And that really is a loss, not because I'm so amazing, but because God has given me some gifts that I get to unleash in these ways. And in general, I think that that tends to give grace to people. And I'm going to have to say no to some of these opportunities in the future. And that's a real thing, and I take that into account. But I also think that in the long run, I can flourish not just as an individual human being and Christian, but also in the reality is that I have found single, being single really hard. I have had to, not because I think I'm unfaithful, I'm not perfect for sure, but as I followed Jesus, I have found that the ache, the loneliness, the 
obsession isn't necessarily the right word, but the like it's always there. It's always there in my experience and my consciousness, and it has really kept me from being able to experience certain things and being available to others. And for me, getting married is ideally something that actually makes me more available to other people because I don't have the gift for it. And so I really do want to, again, say what Paul, when Paul says, if you get married, you haven't sinned, he's not damning it with faint praise. He's not officiating your wedding, being like, ah, oh, we're gathered here today to celebrate the wedding of these two wussies, um, right? That, that's, that's not what he's doing. Um, he's just saying, even with something this central, even with something this good, this powerful, even with something that most of you don't have the gift for, even there, the criteria is not, what do you want? The criteria is what is God doing and what do your neighbors need, even there. And so I hope that all of you will at least consider prayerfully in conversation with others who follow Jesus, is this a gift that maybe God has given me? Um, and, and we just encourage you to be prayerful about that. Thanks so much. Um, so this question says, would you say that there is a way to use potentially powerful position for God's glory? For example, if you're an executive in a company, can you use your clout? Um, for, for the faith? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, that question I want to be really careful with because that question, I think more than any other, is what often props up, in my view, uh, a baptizing of the script our culture gives us, and we put Jesus at the end of the sentence and we just do the same thing, which is, yes, of course, anywhere you are, you can be useful to God, but you can't be any more useful to God in a power or position than you can down here, because literally that's not how God works in the world. Um, it is amazing when you look at how the story of the Bible is told that we know the name of Moses and we do not know the name of the Pharaoh who is ruling Egypt. That we're given a story like Daniel and history doesn't care about Daniel and his three friends. History cares about Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar is the clown in that story. Nebuchadnezzar is just a foil for God to humiliate so that he can show his glory, but Daniel and his three friends are the way the story goes forward. One of the things you should notice as you read the biblical story and try to participate in it and understand your own calling there is how do people who are powerful and people who are not powerful tend to be used by God in this story? And the reality is that sometimes God does use the powerful, but it tends to go against the grain. It's the rare cases. Um, and in general, it's because they were faithful in that position, not because they were in that position. So yes, God can use you, but there is nothing God wants to do through you that requires you to be in that position that he can't do down here. And again, if the gospel is true, if 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31, it is so likely that God is more at work at the low parts of the ladder and not at the high parts. And I've wrestled with this for years. I have spent almost 13 years now working with Ivy League students, and you just, um, you just regularly see the disinterest. Not to say that's not true at Penn State, too, and in other universities, but where the whole world is held before them, there's so little interest in the gospel. And, and I've just seen that even the ones who become Christians, they just walk around with a spiritual handicap their whole lives, most of them, because they're just wrestling with all these things their parents expect of them and their culture expects of them or what they want. And the reality is, is that when the story of our age is told, Harvard students who are Christians will not play a central role in it. And people who lived in New York City and in Manhattan and had really high-paying jobs will not play a big role. They'll play some role, and insofar as you find yourself there, be faithful there, but don't look at that role itself as having anything to do with what God is doing. 
evade that temptation to think that. One, because it's not true, but two, because then it will allow you to give justification to things you're doing for other reasons, but baptize them with the name of Jesus. If you, it just really matters to you that you want to be in that role, let's deal with that, be honest about that, but don't bring Jesus in to explain why that's important to you. Jesus is not why that's important to you, and to be honest, not why it's important to me. And two, Jesus is not going to be helped in what he's trying to do in the world by you being there. He will be helped or hindered by what you do wherever you are. Um, and so, yes, it can be used, but there's nothing special or unique or significant about power positions in society that are connected to what God is doing in the world. So a follow-up question to that um, would be along the lines of, so our, our founder, Bill Bright, founder of crew um is famous for saying if you reach the campus today you'll reach the world tomorrow yeah. and saying that this the strategy in reaching societal leaders um i assume to some extent you agree with that yeah. um because you're working with ivy league students in particular yeah. so so w what place is there for for um pursuing um that's a great question uh really world changers yeah yeah it's a great question um yeah and i work for an organization if you if you look it up like we emphasize that even more like we emphasize that like the world changes from the top down, which I think is the opposite of what the New Testament says, which is it changes from the bottom up, changes from the church at the bottom of the ladder, and, and I think history bears that out. Um, Scott Sunquist is a great church historian. He talks about God is always working primarily on the margins and not in the places of power. That's the God of Jesus, the God of Samuel, the God of Israel, the God of the slaves that he brought out of Egypt. The margins are where God chooses to work and where the revolution comes from. Um, and so, yes, college campuses are significant, absolutely, but Penn State's just as significant as Harvard, and the local community college down the street is just as significant as Penn State. What's significant about college campuses is that as Western society is structured right now, almost every field and vocation and career is connected to you here right now. And there are people in this room and at Penn State who will literally go in 8,000 different directions, and all 8,000 of, of those situations need Christians in them. But the ones at the top don't need Christians any more than the ones at the bottom do. And the reason the ones at the top do is not because that's a more important place to be. It's just because them knowing Jesus and then embodying Jesus is the most important thing. But the church, the body of Christ, the center, the base from which God's mission flows forth, not places here. And so don't set up a spirituality where certain jobs and certain income levels in certain places where you live are, are implicitly seen as just a, a little more cool, a little more central to what God is doing in the world. Um, that's not the script we're given. So yes, college campuses, I do think are strategic, absolutely, but not because in this midst, there'll be two or three of you who are elected to office someday. And on the rest of this is for the two or three of you. That's not why college campuses are significant. It's significant because you will be in every nook and cranny of the world in the future and every one of those nooks and crannies needs faithful Christians in it. And so, yeah, I think that college campuses are significant, but not because of the upward mobility script. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, could you close our time in prayer as the worship team comes up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Father, again, thank you for this community. I do pray um, that insofar as the Spirit might be landing on us in a convicting way, in a, in a heavy way, um, that you would help each of us to just be present and to respond. And I pray that insofar as there, there might well be some excitement, some new possibilities that are being seen and tasted right now, that you would help us to be intentional to explore those. And again, I do pray. Um, my main ambition for every single person in this room 
is that wherever they are and whatever they're doing and whatever the shape of their life looks like and whether in the eyes of the world it's a, it's a harder story or whether in the eyes of the world it's more of a success story or anywhere in between, I pray that above all else, by your grace, through your spirit, as we follow Jesus together, that we would excel in loving you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbor as ourselves, and that we would reduplicate, imitate the story of Jesus, participate in it, and that wherever we are, that we would help, um, that, that we would be part of what you're doing in the world, and that everything else we would hold at arm's length in a real way, detached as if not disinvested from it, participating where we need to, and enjoying it because it's part of creation, but nonetheless not over-spiritualizing it and not allowing it to be the central priority. Help us to make building up the church to reflect the image of God in Jesus um, our central priority in life. Um, and again, I, I pray for these, for these friends who are so many of them half my age, and I just um, kind of look down the, the years and the decades to come, and I pray that for each one of them without exception, that it could be said when they are old and when their story is almost over in this world, that the community of the body of Christ that they were a part of looks a little more like Jesus in that place, in that location, than it would have if they had not been there using their gifts loving people, available to what you're doing, serving their neighbors, and I pray that we would all be faithful followers of Jesus above all else, and then we would bloom where we're planted um, and find profound flourishing and joy as we pursue that adventure. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. The talk you have just listened to is a presentation of Penn State Crew. Crew is a community where the gospel captures hearts, transforms lives, and launches men and women into a lifelong adventure with Jesus Christ. To find out more about Penn State Crew or to find more talks, music, and videos, check out PennStateCrew.org. That's PennStateCRU.org. This talk is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States license. You are free to copy and distribute this talk to others as long as you do not do it for commercial purposes or alter, transform, or build upon this talk in any way.